Welcome to the preaching podcast of Poplar Springs Baptist Church in Hiram, Georgia, and the preaching ministry of our senior pastor, Wayne Meadows. It is our desire that the message you hear today would call you to a closer walk with Jesus Christ, and that your life would give glory to God as you apply the biblical truths proclaimed. For more information about the ministry of Poplar Springs Baptist Church, check us out on the web, www.psbchurch.net. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the preaching of God's Word. I wonder, um, have you gotten tired of hearing the Christmas songs yet? Some of you are like, oh yeah. Some of you are like, oh no. It amazes me the, uh, the ends of the spectrum that people land on when it comes to, to Christmas songs. Some of you play them all year long. Uh, some of you start playing them uh, in June when it's still 100 degrees outside. And some of you, uh, you might listen to them when Christmas Eve rolls around and maybe for a little bit on Christmas Day. But people are, are all over the spectrum when it comes to uh, the Christmas songs and the Christmas season. Uh, but one of the things that's really striking to me about many of the Christmas songs, including the Christmas carols, the carols of the church that sing about Christmas and the coming of Christ, are uh, some of the scenes that they paint for us at the manger. Some of the scenes that they give us of that that first uh, Christmas night. As we hear the songs sung, as we consider the words of the the Christmas carols, and maybe even some of the images that we've seen on Christmas cards that we've sent out, or maybe on Christmas productions on uh, the television screen, they always seem so peaceful, don't they? So calm. We're familiar with that, that line in one of the carols, um, everything is calm. Round John Virgin, all is right. It's calm, it's tranquil. Uh, we, we kind of develop these images in our minds that um, that's, that's what the first Christmas was like. And, and perhaps it had some elements of that, uh, but I'm sure it wasn't always calm that first Christmas night. I'm sure it wasn't always as peaceful as we would like to think that it might have been. Um, I'm oftentimes, uh, as I see it pop up sometimes on some social media feeds, uh, one of the the statements, um, the Christmas song, The Little Drummer Boy, that's what every mother wants after they've just delivered a child, right? A drummer over there in the corner beating away on a drum. That just doesn't add to the peacefulness, but nevertheless, it uh, is part of the Christmas tradition now. But when we think about Christmas from a biblical standpoint, we're not really told exactly everything that unfolded that first Christmas night. We're not given all the details of what the atmosphere and the scene might have been there in the manger. We're told what the angels experienced and what the shepherds found, obviously the child wrapped in swaddling cloths. But it might not have been as peaceful as we would like it to have been. And while we don't know for sure if that was the case on that first night, what we do realize is that because of Christmas, things got really uncomfortable really quickly. We want to think, and the world wants to think, and our culture wants to think of Christmas as being this this big season of peace. And certainly the Prince of Peace had come, but when we stop and think about it and, and think a little bit deeper and peel back the layers, Christmas really is an uncomfortable time. 
And I want us to think about that for not, tonight for just a little bit. An uncomfortable Christmas. An uncomfortable Christmas. Underneath all of the Christmas pageantry, when we strip it all away, where everything is merry and bright, calm and tranquil, when we look a little bit deeper, it gets quite uncomfortable. Because Christmas is really about God going to war with sin. Christmas is God going to war with sin. In Genesis chapter 3, we have uh, the very first mention of the gospel is God steps into the garden there, confronting Adam and Eve over their sin and bringing judgment not only against them, but also against Satan, the serpent who led them into that sin. And in Genesis 3, the Lord says to him, there will be enmity between her seed and you. It literally means hatred unto warfare. There was a battle that was brewing from the very beginning a war that was being waged. And when we come to Christmas, we find God going to war against sin. It really is an uncomfortable thought and something that we are prone to just push out to the uh, ends of our, our thinking when we come to this season. But it really is at the heart of what's going on biblically, redemptively, and God's plan to rescue As we think about an uncomfortable Christmas tonight, I want us to go to the Old Testament, to Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13. If you're familiar with the book of Nehemiah, you know that it centers upon a gentleman of that name who has returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of the city. He has received a report that the walls of Jerusalem were broken. They were in disrepute. It burdened him. It broke him. He cried out to God and the Lord uh, provided, sent him back and used Nehemiah in an extraordinary way Uh, to accomplish a a major task in a very short period of time. And in the midst of all of that, uh, he faced great opposition, uh, but yet he remained faithful to the task, leading the people of God uh, to complete the rebuilding project, leading them in a return to the word and prayer, to living a life of worship, and uh, watching as God used uh, ordinary people to do some really extraordinary things. Nehemiah 13 is the last chapter in the book. And what we're going to see tonight is that Nehemiah, having led the people in the previous 12 chapters to accomplish this task and to restore the walls of Jerusalem and to kind of bring back the order uh, of life for them and worship for them, uh, he returns back to where he was serving as a cupbearer for the king. He leaves the city for a time. And then here in Nehemiah 13, he returns, he comes back. And when he comes back, he can't believe what he finds. And what we have here at the end of Nehemiah really 
Um, If I were to just pull a verse out of the chapter and read it for you and ask you, not giving you any indication of what I'm reading or where it's found, is this in the Bible? You would probably find it hard to believe. We're going to hear in just a moment about Nehemiah pulling the hair out of people's heads. I mean, who, who thinks that's in the Bible? But yet we're about to see it. In some ways, it's a very uncomfortable confrontation that he has. But it's in this uncomfortable confrontation in Nehemiah 13 upon his return that we, we get an idea of what God is doing in Christmas as well. So if you have your Bibles open, let's read Nehemiah 13. We'll start with verse 4. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God, and who was related to Tobiah, just a brief reminder here, Tobiah was one of the antagonistic, antagonists against uh, Nehemiah previously in the book, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. And while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with a grain offering and the frankincense. So let's pause right here to make sure we've got an idea of what's going on in Nehemiah 13. So Nehemiah has gone back to serve in Babylon. He returns, and when he comes back, he realizes that in astonishment, what was once used as a place within the temple courts to house elements of worship, grain offering, frankincense, vessels, uh, oil, wine, things that were allotted to the Levites who would serve in the temple, other laborers of the temple courtyards, those things had kind of been removed and displaced, and now his antagonist had kind of set up home there. He had a chamber, he had a, a place where he would carry out business and perhaps even reside. Nehemiah discovers this and he is extremely angry to the point that he throws all the household furniture of Tobiah out. We come to verse 10, and Nehemiah is going to make some other discoveries. He says, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? So Nehemiah has discovered that those who were to be serving there in the temple, the Levites, the singers, they were unable to do so because what they were to be supplied with wasn't being given. This had forced them to vacate their responsibilities in the temple, to to go back to where they lived and to take care of their own needs. So Nehemiah gathers everybody together and sets them in their stations. He's seeking to make things right. 
Verse 12, Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses uh, Shalemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Pedadiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan the son of Zachor, uh, son of Mataniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his servants. Verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath. Here's another issue Nehemiah has discovered upon his return. The people of God are laboring on the Sabbath day, that which was strictly forbidden according to the Mosaic law. Not only were they treading wine presses, but they were bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. I'm not sure if you're reading in the ESV translation uh, this evening, but if you are, you'll notice at the end of verse 16, uh, that thought concludes with an exclamation point. Nehemiah is in disbelief at what he is seeing and observing. He, he's about to literally blow his top. Verse 17, Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. So he is seeking to correct what is wrong. He's giving instructions to prohibit the buying and the selling and the working that was going on within Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. He says, I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load may be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. That's right. He's, he's going to hurt somebody. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. So we've seen Nehemiah witness the improper use of temple grounds, the breaking of the Sabbath commandments, and now in verse 23 there's another error that he notices. He says, in those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Do you remember recently in our study of the book of Joshua on Sundays? 
One of the last things Joshua summoned them together and told them not to do, to make sure that they didn't do, don't intermarry with the people of Canaan. It wasn't an issue of race at all. It was an issue of religion. Joshua understood that if they were to intermarry with people of a different religion, it would lead them astray from the true God. And here, Nehemiah comes back to realize that people there in Jerusalem, Jews, had done this exact thing. And they had children that they had raised that could not speak the language of Judah. They they couldn't speak Hebrew, we might say. And they couldn't read the Torah. They couldn't understand the commandments or the ways of God. So in verse 25, Nehemiah confronts them. We've seen this now several times. Nehemiah confronting, Nehemiah uh, rebuking. It's a very uncomfortable scene. He says, and I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. See, I wasn't lying to you. I mean, if I set you down and just read that part of verse 25 and, and said, now this is out of the Bible, from a very recognizable character who seemed to be acting in a very righteous way, I think many of us would go, no. I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. If you ever hear somebody say that they feel like they're going to go Old Testament on you, you probably want to get away from them as fast as you can. (laughs) Because I think that's what going Old Testament is. He said, I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you should not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Joshua gave that explicit prohibition, don't intermarry with the foreigners. Not because they're foreigners, but because they don't worship the true and the living God. Paul gives that same exhortation in the New Testament to us, that Believers and unbelievers should not be equally yoked. See it so often sometimes within the church where a believer will marry an unbeliever. And the majority of the time it doesn't go well. It doesn't always go well. There's an influence that's there. And here Nehemiah points to one of the most startling cases of it. Solomon The wisest man who ever walked on the face of the earth, perhaps. And his downfall were these foreign women who made him to sin. Verse 27, shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonites. Sanballat is the other antagonist to Nehemiah in this book. Therefore, I chased him from me. Nehemiah is just running people all over the place. 
here in chapter 13. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I establish the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. Nehemiah 13 is really an uncomfortable chapter with all the confrontation that takes place. Upon his return, he realizes that the people have not remained faithful to the Lord. They've forsaken God's ways. They're living in sin in relation to the temple, Sabbath, and marriage. And he confronts them. And that's what we need in our lives as well. We need confrontation, particularly in regards to sin. The key takeaway from Nehemiah chapter 13 is that sin must be confronted in our lives. Upon his return, that's what Nehemiah does. Let me give you three reasons why that's the case. And see if we can't perhaps tie it to Christmas this evening. Why we need to confront sin in our lives. First of all, we easily grow comfortable with our sins. We easily grow comfortable with our sins. What's really alarming about what we see happening here in Nehemiah 13 is what happened just a few chapters prior. In Nehemiah 10, verses 28 through 32, before Nehemiah heads back, he leads the people to understand these particular areas, to understand how they're to serve in the temple, to understand uh, how they're to keep the Sabbath, to understand that they're not to intermarry with foreign women. But yet Nehemiah departs, and over time, before you know it, they slip back into their old ways. They go back to perhaps what is more comfortable, what is more familiar. Maybe for them it was just too difficult to deal with. I think if we were honest tonight, we would have to acknowledge the same, is that we can sometimes grow very comfortable with our sins. We know that it's wrong. We know that it displeases God. We know that this isn't right or honoring to Him. We, we know that it's a sin. But whether we lack the energy or the conviction the understanding, we, we simply are comfortable with it. That's what they had come to here in Nehemiah 13. They were comfortable with a, a foreigner living there in the temple. They were comfortable with the Levites not being there to serve. They were comfortable in seeing business go on as usual on the Sabbath. They were comfortable with their children not knowing the Torah, not knowing how to speak the language of God's people. They were comfortable with their sin. That all changed when Nehemiah showed up. He confronted them because they were comfortable. But he also confronted them because the consequences of sin are great. The consequences of sin are great. Had what transpired there at the temple in Nehemiah 13, continued on. 
it would have led to a loss of worship for the people of God. The worship that God commanded and the way in which he commanded it would no longer be. Their approach to God would be vain. Had they continued on in not dealing with these marriages that were dishonoring to God, that were forsaking the way that he told them to go, it would have led to a loss of witness to future generations. There's a great consequence to our sin. But ultimately, had their sin not been dealt with, had it not been confronted, the wrath of God was there. The judgment of God was looming, impending. In verse 25, Nehemiah says to them, I'm making you take an oath. Remember, don't do these things. Don't give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. And he, he confronts them. He acts aggressively toward them. He curses them, beats them, pulls out their hair. That verse that we, we highlighted as we looked at that. That's not just Nehemiah going off the handle there. That's not Nehemiah just having a really bad day. That's a man who understands the consequences of sin and the judgment of God against it. The consequences of our sin are so, so great. And so our sin must be confronted as uncomfortable as the confrontation may be to us and even to the one who is giving it to us, it's far better to experience that than the wrath of God. But then third, why confrontation? Why an uncomfortable situation? Because God's compassion for sinners is abundant. In the midst of all the confrontation that Nehemiah 13 has for us, we find Nehemiah in each one of these scenarios at the end saying, remember me, O God. Remember me, O God. Remember me, O God. Remember me according to your steadfast love. Remember me, O God. It's not by accident that that refrain appears here in a chapter where so much sin is highlighted. It's there. To remind us that our God does remember. And that there's mercy for those who will confront their sin. He remembers us according to his steadfast love. God's compassion for sinners is abundant. More abundant than even our sin. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus gives us a, a parable. Two men going into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, one a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed and sounded, I'm sure, as good as he wanted to. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. 
But the tax collector, Jesus said, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. That tax collector who acknowledged his sin, who acknowledged that he needed God's mercy, who confronted the sin of his own heart and his own life, Jesus said that man went down to his house justified. Nehemiah 13 reminds us that if we will confront our sin, God's compassion for sinners is abundant. Uncomfortable probably doesn't do justice to what we see happening in Nehemiah 13, but as uncomfortable as it is, it is necessary. It's necessary because of the consequences of our sin. It's necessary because we're comfortable with our sins, and it's necessary because God's compassion is abundant over our sins. But if we just see Nehemiah here, Nehemiah 13, we'll miss the bigger picture. We'll miss a greater confrontation. As we started tonight in Nehemiah 13, where he comes back and he he begins there in the temple. Does it make you think of anything else? Of anybody else? Doing something really similar? Yes. What did Christ do in the temple one day? He went Nehemiah on them. I I don't know that he pulled out hair, but he made a whip. And he turned over tables. And he chased people from the temple courts. Why? Because things had gotten out of order. Things had gone awry. People had grown comfortable in their sin, and the consequences of their sin were great, but God's compassion was abundant in him. Jesus would cleanse the temple just as Nehemiah did. But what Nehemiah did in this chapter, and even what Jesus did in the temple and the Gospels, is ultimately what he came to do in the world, to cleanse the world of sin. And he does that by confronting us in our sin. Christmas causes us to confront our sins. It it amazes me as I walk through stores. We were sitting down, um, I I believe today at lunch. Uh, The guys here having lunch. And um, as we were sitting there talking, just listening to the music playing in the background at the restaurant, and the Christmas songs that are being played, and gospel songs that are being played, and I'm just, I'm mesmerized, I'm blown away. It's everywhere this time of year. And in those songs, we hear about a Savior coming into this world. But He came because of our sins. And if we think about Him as a Savior, we've got to acknowledge and realize that we are sinners. And Christ and his coming makes that crystal clear. If we're not sinners and our sin is no big deal, 
then why does Jesus need to come? But Christ came. He came at Christmas. And when we think about it, it should really make us uncomfortable because he came to to get us out of our comfort zone with our sin, to reveal to us the depths of our sin and the nature of our sin, the tolerance of our sin. But he came as well to deliver us from the consequences of that sin. He came to remove the wrath of God that abides upon us by taking it upon himself. And in doing that, he came to shed God's abundant mercies upon us. God tonight remembers his people not according to their sinfulness, but according to his son's righteousness. And in that, he saves his people from their sins. Exactly as the angel said to Mary, you will bear a son and call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Christ came at Christmas not to a scene that was perhaps as peaceful as we would like to think. He came to confront, to challenge, to make us uncomfortable over our sins, calling us to belief and repentance in him as the one, the only one who can save us from our sins. Don't let me take away this evening all of Christmas being merry and bright, calm and tranquil. But just remember, underneath that, you'll find much, much more. You'll find God going to war with our sin by sending his son Jesus to us. To reveal our sin and provide redemption through his death and resurrection. And that's what Christmas is really all about. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have sent your Son into the world. And as we consider that this Christmas, the light and the life of men stepping into creation and the reality that as he came to his own his own received him not and they love darkness more than they love the light we realize how comfortable we are in our sin but lord we're grateful we're grateful for a savior who would go to a cross and show us the cost and pay the price. Father, we're thankful that in his sacrifice, redemption has been given. Redemption that's been paid for not with silver or gold, but by the greatest gift that's been given the precious blood of the Son of God shed for us. 
Father, we ask tonight that you would remember us, not according to our sinfulness, but according to his righteousness, according to your steadfast love for us. And Father, I pray that we would go and in this season especially, Lord, share the hope that Jesus has brought. Share the message that Jesus saves, that he saves from sin, he saves from wrath, he saves from judgment. Father, let us go and be witnesses for you, pointing others to the one who saves. Father, for these who are before me, God, I pray that you would bless them and keep them. God, may your face shine down upon them. And may your mercy and peace be multiplied in them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.